Romans chapter 5 and verses 13 and 14. Of course, this is part of a larger section, verses 12 through 21, one of the most important theological sections in the entire New Testament. Paul in Romans 5 affirms that all mankind is naturally under the guilt and power of sin, the reign of death, and the inescapable wrath of God. He traces this back to the sin of the one man whom he described as our common ancestor. Allow me, if you will, to summarize what we've studied in our study of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 so far. First, God made the first man the representative for all his posterity, just as he was to make Jesus Christ the representative for all of God's elect. In each case, the representative was to involve those whom he represented in the fruits of his personal action. That's key. Don't let that just pass by you like some theological jargon. You're going to be identified with one of two persons, either Adam or Christ. And there's a huge bit of ramification to that identification. Well, and you will be involved, whether it's with the one that you are represented by, whether it's going to be either good or bad, just as a national leader involves his people in the consequences of his action when, for example, he declares war. This divinely chosen arrangement, whereby Adam would determine the destiny of his descendants, is called the representative or the federal headship view. We spent a bit of time with that last week. Secondly, God set the first man in a state of happiness and promised to continue this to him and his posterity after him if he showed faithfulness by a course of perfect positive obedience specifically by not eating from a tree described as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was two weeks ago, that we or two lessons ago, when we studied Genesis chapter 3 as a help in understanding what's going on in Romans chapter 5. That, I assume, you all know and you've known since the time you were in Sunday school. Now, C, or the third point of summary I'd like to give you, Adam, led by Eve, who was herself led by the serpent, defied God by eating the forbidden fruit. Again, I would trust that you all are familiar with that. The results were that first, the prideful mindset expressed in Adam's sin became a part of him, and that the moral nature that he now possessed was then passed on to all of his descendants. We call that theologically the fall. And the fall is huge. And unless you understand the fall, you'll never understand what God did to bend down and pick us up in grace. So we've got to remember, we've got to realize where we started from before we can appreciate where we're going and how we're getting there. So we call that the fall. Second, Adam and Eve found themselves gripped by a sense of pollution and guilt that made them ashamed and fearful before God. And they had good reason to be ashamed and fearful before God. Third, they were cursed with expectations of pain and death, and they were expelled from Eden. At the same time, however, God began to show them saving mercy. He made them skin garments to cover their nakedness, and he promised that the woman's seed would one day break the serpent's head. And that, of course, foreshadowed Jesus Christ. That's a summary of what we've done in the last couple of weeks, at least theologically. Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, In Adam all die is a parallel to what he's doing in Romans chapter 5. And this makes explicit what Genesis 3 implied. 
Pascal, a theologian and philosopher of several past generations ago, said that the doctrine of original sin seems an offense to reason. And in fact, wrote a book by that name. But once accepted, it makes total sense of the entire human condition. And looking out over the group last week when we were teaching the difference between the federal headship view and the seminal view, there was confusion. I know that. It's, it's, a, it's a bit complicated. I know that. It's, uh, Pascal called it difficult for us to reason through. Uh, he would call it an offense to reason, but let me translate that, I think, in a little softer way. We may not totally understand the mechanism. Some theologians wonder if we're supposed to totally understand the mechanism, whether it's seminal or federal. But we need to understand the fact. The fact is that no matter how it happened, we are born identified with Adam and his sin. Whether we were seminally or in Adam's body, and so therefore actually participated in the sin, or whether Adam actually represented us. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, Paul teaches that all people stand in relationship to one of two men whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them. Now, don't miss that, because I hope you're ministering to people who don't know Jesus Christ. I hope your, your entire circle of friends doesn't consist only of believers, because you need to be able to look them in the eye with love and kindness and grace. Please, love and kindness and grace, not harshness. The unbeliever has enough harshness in their life already. You need to look at them with love and kindness and grace and be able to tell them, listen, as long as you stay associated with Adam, the end for you is not going to be what you want it to be. Because you see, this part of this, uh, this book of Romans can be outlined this way. And I hope you remember this. I'm going to do it so many times that, that it will burn it into you. But because of one man who disobeyed, death came into the world. And we are all born associated with that one man, that one man whose name, very name Adam means man. On the other hand, one man obeyed and life was possible. Now, as you sit here right now, Everyone in this room is identified with one of these two men. Now, we all start off, this is Romans 5, 12 through 21. We all start off identified with Adam. Everybody, even infants, even little cho even my little sister Cindy, who's 46 now, but has never had an opportunity to, to make a rational decision for or against God, even she's identified with Adam. Now, everyone who reaches an age of accountability will, will have an opportunity to then be identified with Jesus Christ. If you're identified with Adam, you're born dead, and you're going to stay that way. Now, you may be living now, but you're not really living. You're just marking time until the last judgment. And I don't mean to be harsh. I just mean to be honest with you and tell you the truth. But if you'll identify yourself with Jesus Christ by grace through faith, then that's when life comes in. Now, now, really, if you understand these two concepts, you understand Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Now, don't turn me off. There's a lot more to it than that. But if you'll just get these two summary statements, you've got it and you understand it. So, the two acts, while momentous in their significance, are not equal in power. Which one is more powerful than the other one? 
say the second one because the second one is able to overcome the first one if if the if adam's sin was more powerful than christ's redemption then then we couldn't be sure that being identified with christ would get us over adam's sin so they are both momentous in their significance uh, monumentous rather in their significance when when adam fell all of nature fell Every aspect of our being fell. Our emotion, our intellect, and our will, all aspects of our being fell. Now, the, the, the image of God in men wasn't annihilated. Adam and Eve still could speak to God after the fall, but it was severely damaged. Every aspect of that image. Christ's act, though, is able to completely overcome the effects of Adam's act. Anyone who receives the gift that God offers in Christ finds security and joy knowing, knowing that the reign of death has been completely and fully overcome by the reign of grace, righteousness, and eternal life. So the great theme of this paragraph could go like this. Christ's act of obedience is powerful enough to overcome Adam's act of disobedience. This passage shows why... Those who have been justified and reconciled, remember that was our subject in chapter 4 and, and previously, it shows why they can be certain that they will be saved from wrath and share in the glory of God. Why is it? Why can we be certain that if we identify ourselves with Christ, we will share eternal life? Why? I'll tell you why. Because Christ's act is more powerful then Satan, I mean, then, well, Satan's act, but Adam's act. Okay? This is more powerful than this. That's why we can be certain. If they were equal in power, we should tremble. And some people, I think, wonder if they are equal in power. So they walk around wondering if they have eternal life. If you're identified with Christ, you've got it. You can't lose it. And nobody is strong enough to pluck you out of the Father's hand or the Son's hand. Oh, this is important. This is not just dry theology for some seminary classroom and for future pastors and theologians and, and the seminary professors to discuss. This is something that every believer needs to have burned into our soul. For if we don't know where we started and with whom we're identified, we're going to shake in our boots all of our lives. And we were not designed to do that. We were designed to confidently know we have eternal life. Now, can you see what might happen if you didn't believe this, say you were a believer in Jesus Christ, and by the way, you're always, we have to watch our terminology, someone may not actually still be a believer. I had, had a close friend who's, who has a family member who says, I'm not a believer in Jesus Christ anymore. And they will tell me, well, yes, you are, whether you like it or not. Actually, our terminology should be, well, you're saved and you're justified whether you like it or not. Someone could actually quit being a believer. If, if we were to use the terminology, one who is believing in Jesus Christ. But once you're identified, I hope you understand that. If not, talk to me afterwards. But, but once you're identified with Christ, you're no longer and never can be again identified with Adam. That's the beauty of this passage. It should give us such comfort. On the other hand, if you, if you knew someone who thought they could lose their salvation and set them alongside someone who knew that they couldn't, which one do you think leads a more comfortable life? I know what some are going to say. Well, the one who believes that he can't, knows that he can't, is going to live a more sinful life. Because, I guess what you're telling me, Bruce, is that, you mean, I could go out and murder someone. Haven't you ever heard this? I could, can you mean you tell me you could go out and murder someone 
and still be identified with Christ? You can't be saying that, can you? And I would say, yes, I am saying that. In fact, there are some examples of one who did, and that was David in the Old Testament. Probably Moses, too, if we were to take a close look at his story. Is this an excuse to go out and murder someone? Well, heaven forbid. What do you think? What do you, what do you really think of Christianity? If that's what you, if that's what you think grace is all about, grace is not a license to sin. And in case you're wondering, in case maybe this is the only time you ever plan on coming, then go ahead and read on up to chapter 6, because Paul's going to say that. Just because there's grace doesn't mean that we should continue sinning so that grace might increase. No, no, you're missing the point, Paul says. Appreciate grace. In fact, the one who knows that they have eternal life will, live, will lead a life of comfort and, and have a much easier, although there's still bumps in every life, but have a much easier path to maturity. Oh, this is huge. So the reason why, again, that those who have been justified and reconciled can be certain that they will be saved from wrath and share in the glory of God is because Jesus Christ's act of obedience ensures eternal life for all those who are in Christ. Now last time, the last two times we've studied one verse, that's verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And most Bibles, most English Bibles, will be marked off with a double dash after the word sin to indicate that English translators understand Paul <coughs> breaks the sentence off almost in mid-thought here. And some have, have um, inserted some words that probably are legitimate uh, to, to help us understand the rest of the sentence because all sinned when Adam sinned, or all sinned in Adam. We spent two weeks on that particular verse because an understanding of that verse will help us to understand the rest of the entire, admittedly difficult, paragraph. Now, in conjunction with our study of verse 12, we brought up the idea of imputations. This was another one that had you kind of literally, some literally scratching your heads last time, so I'd like to take one more pass through that because, again, while imputation is a very challenging theological concept, it's critical to understand, there's one particular imputation in particular that we need to understand, whether it's real or judicial. Talk about it in a second. We've got to understand that before we're going to appreciate grace. There are three that we mentioned. The first is the one from Romans 5.12, the imputation of the Adamic sin to the human race. This last phrase, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The second imputation that most all evangelical theologians acknowledge is the imputation of the sin of man to the substitute Jesus Christ. In fact, I'd have to say all. If you don't recognize that, you're not an evangelical. I wouldn't in any sense of the word. And third, the imputation of the righteousness of God to the believer. Now, those are three imputations that theologians generally agree with. There's a fourth that I didn't speak to you about last time, and again, if you want to talk to you about that one, I'll, I'll talk to you about it ever a bit, but you have to hold to some of these before, in certain views, before you'll come up with the fourth, so let's leave that one off for now. Just study the three that everyone agrees with, and imputations can be either real or judicial. Remember that terminology? They can either be real or judicial. A real imputation is the reckoning to one that which is antecedently his, while a judicial imputation is the reckoning to one that which is not antecedently his. Now let me explain, and I'll explain with a passage of Scripture, and again, think and then you tell me whether this is real or judicial. Real means there's antecedents, judicial means there's not. Okay, And the passage comes from Philemon. 
And remember what was happening in Philemon. We'll study Philemon after we finish the book of Colossians because it was written at the same time. Philemon, as best I can tell, lived in, in Colossae. There was a runaway slave named Onesimus that had been ministering to Paul in Rome. Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon and he's telling him, be grace, have some grace toward him. He's, he's a slave, but he's your brother in Christ. And then Paul says uh, to Philemon, if then you regard me as a partner, so he's speaking to Philemon, if, if I'm your partner, accept him as you would me. The reason he's got to say this is because in the Roman world you could execute a slave for running away. And he's sending a man back that's a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't want Onesimus executed. He wants some grace shown to this man. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. If Onesimus owes you anything, charge it to me. Now, is that a real or a judicial imputation? It's judicial. And why? Because there's no antecedents. It was Onesimus' debt. Paul paid it. Make sense? That's, that's a biblical example of a judicial imputation. Now, the imputation of the sin of man to the substitute Jesus Christ on the cross, I'm not going to ask you this one. I'm going to tell you. That's judicial. And hopefully everyone would say that right away because Jesus Christ never sinned. I did. And so for, for God the Father to impute my sins to him is definitely judicial. He didn't owe anything for my sins. I owed it. He took the penalty on himself. But here's where here's where the going gets a little bit more difficult. Well, actually, we'll do the other one. The imputation of the righteousness of God to the believer, I hope you understand that's judicial as well. We have no affinity for his righteousness. But the imputation of the Adamic sin to the human race. Now, here's why we bring this up in the first place. The imputation of the Adamic sin to the human race. Now, we can argue about it, and theologians sometimes do. Some say real, some say judicial. The ones that say judicial say judicial because they say, I wasn't there. I didn't sin at Adam. There is no affinity between Adam's sin and me. None whatsoever. I'm innocent. I wasn't there. The problem is, Paul doesn't look at it that way. Again, however we get to that conclusion, whether it's a seminal view or a federal view, whether he represented us or whether we actually sinned in Adam, he doesn't look at it that way. He looks at it like there is affinity, like there is antecedents. So theologically, this is a real imputation, a real judicial imputation. And again, I, I want to keep bringing you back to this. This is not just theology for a, for a systematic theology textbook. Unless we truly grasp the truth that we deserve spiritual death whether it was because of Adam did it for us and he represented us and remember the way that I feel the reason I feel like representative view is the most reasonable one is because it makes sense with the parallel that's going on with Jesus Christ and because I know good and well if any of us were placed in the same position we would do the same thing and how, you, how do you know that Bruce because all of us have sinned since plenty of times and then you might say well sinners sin what did you expect from us okay anybody you ever heard that you know they, they, we couldn't help but sin because we have an old sin nature really I told you if you can understand this you'll understand the rest of the book of Romans sin's no longer normal for the believer it's common but it's not normal after salvation yet it's common we do it all the time but it's not the norm it's not what is expected of us so, if you have been totally sinless as a believer, 
then I'll buy your argument that Adam didn't represent you and you wouldn't have done it if you had the if you uh, were in his shoes. No, we have to understand that however we get there, Paul believes that the imputation of Adamic sin to the human race is a real imputation. There was antecedents. Before I leave this verse now and move on to verses 13 and 14, I want you to recall one more thing, and this is where this chart comes in, and that's the issue of inherited sin and imputed sin. We're talking about so many different types of sin. I wanted to give you this chart. If you don't have one, look on look with somebody next to you. If you'd like one, I'll make some more copies. I think I came up a little bit short. There's one here. If uh, we need one, a couple for back there. Would you pass those back? Inherited sin and imputed sin. What we're talking about in Romans chapter 5 is essentially imputed sin. However, there is a concept of inherited sin, and if it will help you to understand it any better, perhaps fitting in with a framework that maybe you already are familiar with terminology, the box on the left-hand side, speaking of inherited sin, refers to the transmission of the sinful nature in man. You get your sinful nature from your parents. Two parents get together and they form a sinful nature. But you don't get the imputation of Adam's sin from your parents. That comes directly from God. Okay? That's what this chart would help you to understand. And by the way, if you're wondering where I got this chart, uh, this is from Charles Ryrie's Basic Theology. You inherit a sinful nature from your parents, and the only exception to this being one person in human history, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. And again, Adam's sin is directly is directly imputed to us. Now let's continue the sentence in the time that we have left, or actually continue the the thought. Uh, there's a break in the sentence. Paul says, "For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses." even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of things to come. Or him, rather, who was to come. I guess I had Pentecost on the mind. He's a type of... Dr. Pentecost wrote a book called Things to Come. That Probably two or three people got that joke. But Who is a type of him... And the two people that got it should be laughing loudly right now to help me out a little bit. But, but I'll, I'll forget that. There you go. Thank you. I knew somebody would come up. In verse 13, if, if we were to have a reasonable graph of verse 12, and I think, I hope we do now. I hope everybody does. If not, again, please get with me afterwards because I want you to. But having a reasonable grasp of verse 12, verses 13 through 21 should be a bit easier to follow. If you were just to read, and I hope you did read this paragraph before we got started, it might have been a little complicated. I hope you would think that. Most all theologians and exegetes do. So if you came at it and, and thought this is the easiest paragraph that I've ever read, then you're probably missing something. <laughs> it, is, it is difficult. I admit that. Even you know, when I studied this, I, I struggled with it and had to, to, uh, to pray over it, to, to uh, be very, very careful with the exegesis of it. And so I'm going to admit this is not the easiest passage in the world. In fact, some consider it one of the most difficult passages in the Scripture. But it is without a doubt one of the most important theological passages in the New Testament. Without an understanding of original sin, 
we will have a weak view of grace. With a weak view of grace, our movement toward maturity will move at a snail's pace, if we move in that direction at all. I want to say it again. Without an understanding of original sin, we will have a weak view of grace. And this is what I mean. If somehow we can talk ourselves into thinking that the imputation of Adam's sin to the human race, one at a time, is a judicial imputation, meaning that there's no antecedents toward me at all, that God just forced this on me. Put yourself in this mindset now. And I hope it's difficult to do because this is not the right theology. But say God forced this sin upon you and there was no affinity for you whatsoever. In my mind, if this has been forced upon me, I probably am not going to appreciate it as much when he comes and rescues me from that. You see that? Because in our prideful mind, we would say, I had that coming to me. I didn't deserve to be under Adam's original sin in the first place. So yeah, he should have sent his son to die for me. As a matter of fact, he's some sort of cosmic puppeteer. He's up there manipulating things. So he, I was owed grace. Well, you just negated the very meaning of the word grace when you say that. We have to understand that it's a very real imputation. That there was affinity. That if we were in Adam's position, we would have done the same thing. And we've proven that thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of times since. Then we can start to see how beautiful grace is. If you happen to think maybe that, you know, growing up, I wasn't such a bad kid. I don't remember ever doing some of the things that other kids do. So when I came to Christ, there wasn't as much grace necessary as when, say, someone else came to Christ, because they were one of the bad boys and girls. If that's the way you think, then you'll never properly understand grace, and you're going to have a harder road toward maturity again if you can ever get there at all this is so important now in these two verses verses 13 and 14 I want to raise a theoretical objection primarily I think what Paul is doing there is a theoretical objection coming from someone that's reading this he's anticipating it in his genius under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit probably coming from a Jewish believer in the congregation, perhaps a Jewish unbeliever, but even a Jewish believer, trying to understand this. The objection would go something like this. Well, that's fair for us, Paul. We have the Mosaic Law. We have specific prohibitions. But what about the people from Adam to Moses? They had no law. So how could God find them guilty? In other words, how is it fair for you to say they would have done the same thing? There was no specific prohibition. Let me show you how that might look to help you follow this. It's rather straightforward. Adam Adam had law, did he not? He only had one, but he did have law. When we get to Moses, we know they have law. Mosaic law, or the law given at Sinai. In fact, if you'll allow me, I'm going to make that plural. They had laws, many prohibitions. But what this potential objector, and this is the, the best way I can see this text, what the potential objector said, well, what about the people from here to here, though? 
Because the Mosaic Law hadn't been given, and remember one of the purposes of the Mosaic Law, one of the purposes, was to show us what sin was. Paul will say that in chapter 7. I wouldn't have known what lusting was if the law hadn't explained it to me. So, what about those folks? Maybe they don't fall under this category. Now, the people that were making the potential objection knew that they weren't one of those folks, but you know how people continue to ask theological questions sometimes that may not that they know they don't. Um, it's kind of like uh, spending, I think, too much time on the tribulation. I'm asked sometimes why I don't do it. It is part of the Word of God. And 25% or 28%, depending on who you read, of the, of the Bible as a whole was, um, was speaking of future events at the time it was written. Uh, so we certainly want to consider things that happen in the tribulation, but I want you to make sure you understand what your responsibilities are now because you're not going to go through the tribulation. But just with that in mind, there's what about those people? Well, think about it for a minute. Look at that timeline on the board as we consider this. But in confirmation of the statement, all sinned, including even those people who lived on the earth from Adam to Moses, Paul reasons as follows. Because what Paul has just said was all these people had sinned whether they had the Mosaic Law or not, you see. Now he's going to tell you how he gets there. Sin was in the world even before Sinai's law was given, as is shown by the fact that death, sin's punishment, reigned supreme during the period of Adam to Moses. Is there any one big, huge, particular event that we might could insert in that period that would demonstrate to us for sure that sin existed from Adam to Moses? The flood, thank you. So the, the people who are bringing up this objection have forgotten all about that. There were prohibitions. It wasn't codified like the Mosaic Law. But Paul's already talked about that, hasn't he, in Romans chapter 2? And he says, even if they didn't have the law, the law was written on their hearts. They had their consciences. They knew what was right and what was wrong, even like people today do. So the objection is going to fall short. Because death reigned even over those who did not sin by transgressing an expressed command, like Adam did, because the law was written on their hearts. What Paul's saying as we get kind of close to the end, these people had no excuse either. These people sinned too. In fact, up until Genesis 6, Genesis 6 through 9 tells us about everybody on the human race had to suffer this penalty because they had all rejected Christ, and, they were, and evil was continuing to increase and increase and increase upon the earth. In fact, that's what's going on between Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 6. It's an increase of evil, evil, evil. So Paul's just going back and reminding us what was going on there. Though the Mosaic Law, with its expressed commands, did not yet exist in this period of time, there was law. And this law, with, its, with death as the punishment for those who violated, was indeed applied. Remember our study back in Romans 1, 18 through 32. That there was law follows from the fact that there was sin. If there had been no law, watch, if there had been no law, there could have been no sin. Okay? There's a phrase in here I think that's the most difficult, uh, which, which says, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Does that, does that mean that Adam's original sin wasn't imputed? 
Well, actually, I think what Paul's saying is that there was law in this time. Douglas Moo, who's one of the best New Testament scholars we have regarding the book of Romans, put it this way. Speaking of that phrase, but sin is not imputed where there is no law, this expresses Paul's view that sin can be charged explicitly and in detail to each person's account only when that person has consciously and knowingly disobeyed a direct command that prohibits sin. That's the only way sin's going to be imputed to you. You have to know what the prohibition is before you can disobey it, can't you? At least when it comes to the imputation of sin. Adam knew what the prohibition was. Everybody agree with that? I hope so. Those in the Mosaic dispensation that spent any time in the Word know, knew what the prohibitions were. The, the potential objector is talking about this time period in here, and Paul is saying they had law. It was written on their hearts, and what written, wasn't written on their hearts, for example, the capital punishment came from Genesis 9, way, way before the Mosaic law. They had transgressed it anyway. But had there been no law, these people would have had an excuse. Had there been no law written on their heart, had there been no commands, if the only one was given to Adam and then the next commands weren't given to here, then yeah, I'd agree with you. They would have an excuse. But Paul is saying they don't. So you, you can't get God, there's no getting God on a technicality. He's thought of it all. And certainly everybody from here on out, nobody would have an objection about that. But this one por- portion of history where people might have had an objection, it falls short. The Mosaic Law had not been given even though, even in spite of that, all humans between Adam and Moses were guilty because they had sinned in Adam and because they had committed personal sins. Now, in verse 14, in introducing Adam, the transgressor of an express command, Paul writes, who is the type of him who is to come. You see that in verse 14. Some people might be offended by saying Adam is a type of Christ. And you might say... How is there any resemblance between Adam and Christ? I think it's a good question. But there is resemblance. For just as it is true that Adam imparted to those who were his that which belonged to him, so Christ bestows on his beloved that which belongs to him. That's the resemblance between the two. Otherwise, I mean, there are differences between the two. One obeyed, one obeyed, one disobeyed. So there's grotesque differences. But there is a similarity. So it's in the respect of being identified with one or the other that Adam foreshadows Christ. For the rest of the chapter, though, the parallel is going to be one of contrast. And that's something that we'll study as we pick this back up next week. Now, in closing, let me say, again... In Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21, Paul teaches that all people stand in relationship to one of two men whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them. Either one belongs to Adam and is under the sentence of death because of his sin or disobedience, or one belongs to Christ and is assured of eternal life because of his righteous act of obedience. One of the biggest problems that many find in speaking to the non-Christian in today's world is when non-Christians bring up the problem of evil. And then, then an associated problem, the problem of morality. 
I don't know if you've ever talked to anyone about this, but if you do enough evangelism, if you're out there talking with folks, they're going to bring it up. Says, I'd love to believe in God, but you're going to have to explain to me where evil came from first. Now, there is a natural or naturalistic explanation for evil, and I'll tell you what it is. If you're Darwinian, if you're a, if you're an evolutionary theologian, because that's exactly what you are. You're not an evolutionary scientist because there's very little science left in, in Darwinism anymore. You would come up with something, and it's, people have done this, called a morality gene. And they would say that human morality <coughs> came or evolved from a necessity from the human race to be able to perpetuate itself. So we had to come up with ideas like uh, don't kill you know, don't steal, don't take another man's wife, those kind of things. But does that really solve the problem or the issue of morality? I think that there's a real big monkey wrench that gets thrown into that. I might could buy that if I wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ. I might could buy it if I had an IQ that was lower than room temperature. Frankly, I mean that. But the problem that is these people face is, what about this issue of, like, mass murder? There does seem to be, actually, rather than a human trend toward morality and doing something good, without the restraint of even human law, there seems to be a much bigger trend toward doing things that would be very destructive for the human race. Even on an individual basis, we have a self-destructive tendency. We don't have this constructive tendency we're not, we're not inherently good. Mankind is, if we're pretty honest about it, pretty much the other direction. We're always going to war with each other, I mean, throughout the entire human history, sometimes over the silliest things, sometimes over very legitimate things. But if you know your history, you know there's a lot of wars that were fought just over people's pride. In fact, the, the Trojan War was fought, if we're to believe Homer, over the beauty of a woman. And many, many thousands were slain because of Helen's beauty. Now, I don't think that the morality gene tells us where morals came from or where the morals departed. Morals came from the fact that there's an infinite personal God that sets the standard. He sets the law here, and he sets the law here. The gene didn't do that. But it's the fall. It's what happened over here in Genesis 3 that, under, that explains why evil is in the world. We don't have to... We don't have to fall prey to Darwinism, which in all seriousness is a bankrupt scientific system, and it's a real weak theological system in order to explain these things. It's amazing what some of these really smart people do to try to get around believing, trusting in God. 